from an F-A-18 Super Hornet. The video shows Navy pilots locking an object in their targeting system. Flying off the Florida coast, the object hovers near the nuclear aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt. It is tiny, appearing as merely a fleck, but moves at high speeds without any means of propulsion. Even though these pilots were some of the best in the world, they had no way of reporting this clear threat to national security. Officially, the U.S. government had shut down their only program tracking UFOs decades prior, leaving servicemen and civilians without a clear course of action when encountering the inexplicable. From the outside, it seemed as if the government had given up investigating the hundreds, if not thousands, of credible encounters people were having not just across the country, but the world. As servicemen and reporters unlocked the closed doors of the Pentagon, they discovered a dark money operation continuing to study this strange phenomenon. After an explosion of flying saucer sightings in 1947, the Air Force established the now legendary Project Blue Book to debunk or find an explanation for this new national security threat. As the phrase flying saucer became a punchline, Project Blue Book began calling the crafts unidentified flying objects. By 1952, there were so many reports of UFOs coming through official channels that there was a worry Russia would use these sightings as camouflage for spy crafts, or even a full-on attack. In 1966, the chief of Project Blue Book, Major H. Quintanilla Jr. and Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence J. Tacker sat down for an interview to explain the work they were doing. The Air Force has been accused from time to time of hiding information about UFOs. What do you have to say to that kind of thing? These charges are absolutely untrue. Actually, the United States Air Force releases statistics on the UFO phenomena to the Department of Defense press desk periodically. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide at all. On January 28, 1969, the University of Colorado released their report scientific study of unidentified flying objects. Contracted by the United States Air Force, it concluded the following. No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force has ever given any indication of threat to our national security. There has been no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represent technological developments or principles beyond the range of present-day scientific knowledge. There has been no evidence indicating that sightings categorized as unidentified 
are extraterrestrial vehicles. With this report, Project Blue Book was shuttered from 1947 to 1969. A total of 12,618 sightings were reported. While most had an explanation, 701 remained unidentified. For the following five decades, the government closed the book on UFOs. To this day, the National Archives claims, nothing has happened to indicate that the Air Force ought to resume investigating UFOs. Because of the considerable cost to the Air Force in the past, there is no likelihood the Air Force will become involved with the UFO investigation again. Despite continued sightings that ingrain themselves into American mythology, the United States appeared to refuse to take any action. Pilots, the general public, and even presidents came forward with their own encounters. From Roswell, to Area 51, to the Phoenix Lights, and thousands more, the government came out with reports that people were seeing weather balloons, swamp gas, satellites, experimental airplanes, St. Elmo's fire, and basically anything other than spacecrafts from another planet. But from within top-secret corridors, reporter Leslie Kane heard whispers of deceit. She approached former New York Times reporter Ralph Blumenthal. I had gotten to know Leslie Kane, uh, who was the premier UFO researcher in the country, probably in the world. Uh, she wrote a book about uh, pilots and generals um, who have gone on the record uh, with UFO sightings. In 2017, uh, Leslie went down to Washington and attended a meeting where she learned about the secret UFO office inside the Pentagon. It showed that the government was interested, even though in the end of 1969 with the Project Blue Book, it said that there was nothing to investigate. <laughs> the government was officially dropping its interest in UFOs. That wasn't true. So Leslie found out about this secret Pentagon office and came to me with information about it. In an effort to cloak their secrets, the U.S. government started using a new designation for the objects. Instead of UFOs, they were now called UAPs. UFOs, had, just like flying saucers, the original term, came to have a sensational connotation, and UFOs sort of inherited that, and they wanted to get away from that. First it became unidentified aerial phenomena, and then because these things didn't only seem to operate in the air, they seemed to operate underwater, they became unidentified anomalous phenomena. The Pentagon keeps shifting its terminology, and I guess that's welcome because the phenomenon seems to be, the more we understand about it, is more mysterious than ever. It's not just confined to the skies, as I said, but underwater. Founded in 2007, the office was called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, abbreviated to ATIP, costing the American people $22 million a year. It was run by military intelligence official Luis Elizondo on the fifth floor of the Pentagon's C-ring, deep within the building's maze. We had to authenticate Lou Elizondo's record and got his performance evaluations. There was no doubt he was who he said he was. A lot of the programs he'd been involved in and the operations he'd been involved in were, were classified. A former senior counterintelligence officer for the Department of Defense Elizondo was a trained special agent that led tactical and strategic missions throughout the Middle East and Latin America, including Guantanamo Bay. In 2008, he began work with the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Pentagon. It is here that he became the director of ATIP, 
It was an office uh, inside the Pentagon that was analyzing these encounters that Navy pilots were having with these craft. Presumably they're intelligent because they can do these strange maneuvers that are not known on Earth. And they can uh, achieve ex extraordinary speeds, plunge down to the water and sometimes underwater, turn on a dime, don't seem to have any means of propulsion, by the way, no wings, no tail, no plume of propulsion. They're not, you know, images of clouds. They're not, you know, weather balloons <laughs> uh, or all these kind of nonsensical explanations, contortions, which have been resorted to throw people off the track. These are real objects that can perform extraordinary aerodynamic feats, which is what, you know, freaked out the pilots. And, and by the way, these are the best observers in the world. These are not just ordinary people who happen to see something in the sky. These are highly trained fighter pilots. One of those pilots was Ryan Graves, who later recounted his experience. In 2014, I was an F-18 Foxtrot pilot in the Navy Fighter Attack Squadron 11, the Red Rippers. And I was stationed at NAS Oceana in Virginia Beach. After upgrades were made to our jet's radar systems, we began detecting unknown objects operating in our airspace. At first, we assumed they were radar errors. But soon, we began to correlate the radar tracks with multiple onboard sensors, including infrared systems, eventually through visual ID. During a training mission in Warning Area Whiskey 72, 10 miles off the coast of Virginia Beach, two F-18 Super Hornets were split by a UAP. The object, described as a dark gray or a black cube inside of a clear sphere, came within 50 feet of the lead aircraft and was estimated to be 5 to 15 feet in diameter. The mission commander terminated the flight immediately and returned base. Our squadron submitted a safety report, but there was no official acknowledgement of the incident and no further mechanism to report the sightings. Soon, these encounters became so frequent that aircrew would discuss the risk of UAP as part of their regular pre-flight briefs. Video of Ryan's encounter was eventually declassified. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, thing, dude. That's not an LNS, though, is it? It's not. It is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating. showing an object so cold, the thermal camera only reads it as an outline. The video follows one of several crafts the pilots witness flying in formation. It appears to rotate on its axis mid-flight in a way no known craft can. The distinct movements gave the video its name, Gimbal. It was not the only clip in our government's possession. When Leslie went down to Washington and met with Lou Elizondo and others, she saw the videos and she was able to get three of them. The most famous of the three is the Tic Tac video. One of the pilots that day, Dave Fravor, was initially a skeptic. But this unforgettable encounter changed everything. In 2004, I was a commanding officer of Strike Fighter Squadron 41, the world famous Black Aces. We were attached to Carrier Wing 11, stationed on board the USS Nimitz, and had begun a two-month workup cycle off the coast of California. When we launched off Nimitz, my wingman was joining up. We were told that the training was going to be suspended, and we were, doing, were going to proceed with real-world tasking. As we proceeded to the west, the air controller was counting down the range to an object that we were going to, and we were unaware of what we were going to see when we arrived. There, uh, the controller told us that these objects had been observed for over two weeks, coming down from over 80,000 feet rapidly descending to 20,000 feet, hanging out for hours, and then going straight back up. For those who don't realize, above 80,000 feet is space. 
We arrived at the location at approximately 20,000 feet and the controller called merge plot, which means that our radar blip was now in the same resolution cell as the contact. As we looked around, we noticed that we saw some white water off our right side. It's important to note that the weather on this day was as close to perfect as you could ask for off the coast of San Diego. Clear skies, light winds, calm seas, no white caps from waves. So the white water stood out in a large blue ocean. All four of us, because we were in F-18 F, so we had pilots and Wizzo in the back seat, looked down a small, saw a white tic-tac object with a longitudinal axis pointing north-south and moving very abruptly over the water like a ping-pong ball. There were no rotors, no rotor wash, or any sign of visible control surfaces like wings. As we started clockwise towards the object, my Wizzo and I decided to go down and take a closer look with the other aircraft staying in high cover to observe both us and the tic-tac. We proceeded around the circle about 90 degrees from the start of our descent, and the object, object suddenly shifted its longitudinal axis, aligned it with my aircraft, and began to climb. We continued down another 270 degrees, nose low, to where the tic-tac would have been. Our altitude at this point was about 15,000 feet, and the tic-tac was about 12,000. As we pulled nose onto the object within about a half mile of it, it rapidly accelerated in front of us and disappeared. Our wingmen, roughly 8,000 feet above us, lost contact also. We immediately turned back to see where the white water was at, and it was gone also. So as we started to turn back towards the east, the controller came up and said, sir, you're not gonna believe this, but that thing is at your cat point, roughly 60 miles away in less than a minute. You can calculate the speed. We returned to Nimitz, we were taking off our gear, we were talking to one of my crews that was getting ready to launch, we mentioned it to them, and they went out and luckily got the video that you see, that 90 second video. What you don't see is the radar tape that was never released, and we don't know where it's at of the act of jamming that the object put on an APG-73 radar. Now, I'd like to say that the Tic Tac object we engaged in 2004 was far superior to anything that we had on time, have today, or are looking to develop in the next 10 years. We got these videos and we took them to the New York Times because I had left the Times in um, 2009 after 45 years, but I still had good contacts there. And I told them that this was a, a sensational story about a secret government unit that was investigating UFOs and that the, the director had just resigned. So it was a great story all around and the Times went for it without much prodding. We had it all on the record. There was no secret sources. With the resources of the New York Times, Leslie and Ralph began working alongside other reporters that had well-placed sources within the government. And Helene Cooper, our Pentagon colleague from the Times who had the videos too and was running them on her computer down in the Washington Bureau, uh, she uh, drew a tremendous crowd in the Bureau. They were all clustered around her staring at this video and uh, until then they, she told us afterwards they were kind of making fun of her, some of her colleagues, you know, doing like spooky music sounds like, you know, <laughs> this was all uh, fantasy or something. But when, when she put the videos up and she was looking at them, they all clustered around and they were freaked out as anyone is looking at them. Through her connections, Helene Cooper was able to land an interview with Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. First of all, he was very brave to come out to us. It was kind of kiss of death for anybody in Congress to say they were interested in UFOs because their opponents would make fun of them. So Harry Reid, uh, as the Senate Majority Leader, had the clout and he had the interest. One of the first events that sparked Reid's interest in the subject was a discussion he had with John Glenn, the first astronaut to orbit the Earth. Glenn told Reed that the federal government should be looking seriously into UFOs and should be talking to military service members, particularly pilots who had reported seeing aircraft they could not identify or explain. 
but no one was courageous enough in Congress to really grapple with the implications and see what what it was all about and whether it had any meaning for national security and future of humanity, big questions like that. So Harry Reid was intrigued by the stories he'd heard and he got a fu secret funding, $22 million, to fund this Pentagon office, uh, which I said, OSAP, ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, because all these things are tied in some way to national security. That's the way you get money. You get Congress to appropriate money. You don't, you don't get it because you say this is altruistic, this is good for mankind. You present it as a threat to national security, which in a way it certainly is because there's a technology operating here that nobody understands. And if it falls into adversarial hands, it could be very, very detrimental to American security. The Pentagon budget is huge, obviously, and there's all kinds of cutouts or so. So it's not easy to find anything, any particular appropriation in there. And some of that is for good reason. They don't want adversaries to know where, what we're researching, how much money we're spending. So this money was buried in the budget. There's all kinds of uh, shenanigans going on with money being shifted from one pocket to another that the American people should know about, that certainly members of Congress who are charged with overseeing the spending, you know, even at the highest security levels, someone has to know what's being spent and how, but they weren't being told. Much of that funding went to Skinwalker ranch owner, Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow is an aerospace entrepreneur, a billionaire, who made his money in the hotel business. And he made so much money and was so interested in aerospace that he, he built up his aerospace business to the point where he has a habitat uh, in the International Space Station. He designed a, a, an inflatable habitat. It's very small when it gets sent up you know, up to the space station, but then it expands and it's a place where astronauts can live and expand their housing at the International Space Station. So he's very technically adept. He's very innovative in terms of his aerospace business. He was very close to Harry Reid. He supported Harry Reid. He's also from Las Vegas. Uh, a good part of that $22 million did go to Robert Bigelow, not in any corrupt way that we could find. He was legitimately an expert in this field. ATIP made such incredible discoveries by 2009 that Harry Reid wrote a letter to a deputy defense secretary which stressed, much progress has been made with the identification of highly sensitive, unconventional aerospace-related findings. He requested that it be designated a restricted special access program, which only a handful of listed officials could access. As Leslie, Ralph, and Helene were getting ready to publish, the story started to leak. Nobody successfully debunked the story, which is why it, it carried such weight and other publications jumped in. Some were right with us as we were reported this. ProPolica was very close to us in, in its reporting. They had gotten some of the same information from Lou Alessandro and others. So it was kind of a race who would get the information out first. The story broke in December, December 17, 2017, and it was a kind of an earthquake. Glowing auras and black money the Pentagon's mysterious UFO program blared the New York Times. Even though the Defense Department had never acknowledged a tip, when pressed with questioning from the New York Times, they folded. It was true. A tip was not just a conspiracy theory. It was reality. But they claimed it was shut down in 2012. The Pentagon spokesman told the Times that much like Project Blue Book, 
It was determined that there were other higher priority issues that merited funding, and it was in the best interest of the DOD to make a change. Lou Elizondo refuted this claim, stating that the program had continued their investigation into UAPs while being folded into other duties within the Defense Department. In fact, he continued working on the project from within his office at the Pentagon until October 2017, when he resigned in protest. In his resignation letter to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, Elizondo stressed the need to take serious the many accounts from Navy and other services of unusual aerial systems interfering with military weapon platforms and displaying beyond next-generation capabilities. The Pentagon can be very literal at times when, when it wants to be, and it basically knocked down the story or tried to. The denials are always very carefully worded. The Pentagon has no evidence that UAP are extraterrestrial. Well, that's true. There is no evidence uh, that they're extraterrestrial. It's an inference because they can do things that nothing on Earth can do. But if you look at the denials, uh, and especially over the years, over the, the decades, the Pentagon has been very disingenuous in sharing its information with the American people. American people are entitled to know stuff about this program as long as it's not classified. In the wake of the article, new pressure began to mount on Congress. When would there be oversight for these programs? Mere months after the article dropped, the Office of Naval Intelligence took up the task of reviewing reports of UAPs. A year into their supervision, the Navy drafted new guidelines for reporting unidentified aircraft. Building off these efforts, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, David L. Norquist, approved the establishment of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, UAPTF for short, on August 4, 2020. In announcing the task force, they claimed the mission of the task force is to detect, analyze, and catalog UAPs that could potentially pose a threat to U.S. national security. It was not public. The heads of it did not talk to the press, and we, we couldn't interview them. So all we knew about was that there was this unit, and eventually it came out with a report. Since its inception, they collected 144 reports from within the U.S. government, 80 of which observed the UAP with multiple sensors. 18 incidents witnessed flight characteristics. Some remained stationary in heavy winds. Some maneuvered abruptly. Others took off at high speeds, all without any clear means of propulsion. Other reports saw underwater activity, churning water in an otherwise calm sea that appeared connected to the UAPs. Even with a limited data set, they found most of the UAP reported probably do represent physical objects, given that a majority of UAP were registered across multiple sensors to include radar, infrared, electro-optical, weapon seekers, and visual observation. In what appeared to be a dramatic reversal, after decades of underplaying what was happening, the report concluded, UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. To share how the Defense Department was organizing reports of UAPs, Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Ronald Moultrie, and Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, Scott Bray, testified before a House subcommittee. It was to be the first congressional hearings on UFOs in more than half a century. 
that was the first time the Congress was holding the administration to account to report to the American people what it could. Now, some of that reporting was to the Congress classified. There were two tiers. There was the public reporting, and then there was the classified reports, which we have never seen. On May 17, 2022, representative of Indiana and chairman of the House Intelligence Subcommittee on Counterintelligence, Andre Carson opened the hearing. More than 50 years ago, the U.S. government ended Project Blue Book. In 2017, we learned for the first time that the Department of Defense had quietly restarted a similar organization tracking what we now call unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs. Last year, Congress rewrote the charter for that organization, now called the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. Today, we will bring that organization out of the shadows. During his opening statement, Ronald Moultrie spoke about the steps they were taking in order to improve reporting. We are establishing an office within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. That office's function is clear to facilitate the identification of previously unknown or unidentified airborne objects in a methodical, logical, and standardized manner. This effort will maximize collaboration and build upon already existing relationships with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the FAA, NASA, DHS, and the FBI, and just as importantly, our international partners and allies. With regard to the importance of transparency, the department is fully committed to the principle of openness and accountability to the American people. However, we are also mindful of our obligation to protect sensitive sources and methods. Our goal is to strike that delicate balance, one that enables us to maintain the public's trust while preserving those capabilities that are vital to the support of our service personnel. Scott Bray used his opening statement to talk about the research the Navy has done thus far, uncovering secrets that until this point were classified. Almost two years ago, in August of 2020, Deputy Secretary of Defense Nordquist directed the establishment of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force within the Department uh, of the Navy. The UAP Task Force was built on the foundation of the Navy's initial efforts to respond to the reports from our aviators on unidentified objects observed in our training ranges. From the very beginning, we took these reports very seriously. We instituted a data-driven approach to the investigations where we could collect as much data as possible and use all available resources to analyze and make informed decisions on the best ways to address our findings. Our main objective was to transition UAP efforts from an anecdotal or narrative-based approach to a rigorous science and technology engineering-focused study. And we worked with Naval Aviation Leadership to provide additional equipment to record any encounter. Navy and Air Force uh, crews now have step-by-step procedures for reporting on a UAP on their kneeboard uh, in, their, uh, in the cockpit and uh, in their post-flight uh, debrief procedures. The direct result of those efforts has been increased reporting with increased opportunities to focus a number of sensors on any objects. The message is now clear. If you see something, you need to report it. We've endeavored to bring an all-hands-on-deck approach uh, to, the, to better understand this phenomenon. So what have we learned so far? Any given observation may be fleeting or longer. It may be recorded or not. It may be observable by one or multiple assets. In short, there's rarely an easy answer. For example, let me share with you the first video that we have here today, which shows an observation in real time. 
unlike previously released videos, this was in broad daylight shot from a regular camera. While it whisks by in just a fraction of a second, the UAP is clear. A white sphere speeds past a fighter jet. This was the clearest video yet, corroborating multiple sightings. Throughout the hearing, they would go on to show multiple videos, which, for the first time, were declassified. Later in the hearing, Representative Adam Schiff asked for further analysis of the video shown. Um, Mr. Bray, can you rerun that first uh, image that looked like it was outside of a plane window? Um, and if you wouldn't mind going up to the screen and tell us what we're, what we're seeing. Uh, I, not that you can necessarily tell us what we're seeing, but right. explain what we should be looking at in that first image. Absolutely. What are we observing? Uh, what you see here is aircraft that is operating in a U.S. Navy training range that has observed spherical object in that area. And as they fly by it, they take a video. You see a, it looks reflective in this video, somewhat reflective, and it quickly passes by the cockpit of the, uh, of the aircraft. And is this one of the phenomena that we can't explain? I do not have an explanation for what this, this specific uh, uh, object is. These objects were not just observed at a distance. There have been no collisions between any U.S. assets and one of these UAPs, correct? We have not had a collision. We've had at least 11 near misses, though. Some of the congressmen were concerned about the transparency of the task force. This is the third version of this task force. And to be frank, um, one of Congress's concerns is that the executive branch and administration, both parties, uh, has been sweeping concerns about UAPs under the rug by focusing on events that can be explained and avoiding events that cannot be explained. What can you, what, 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 what can you say to give the American people confidence that you aren't just focusing our attention on low-hanging fruit with easy explanations. So the way that we're approaching this is with a, a more thorough, standardized methodology than what we have in the past. First and foremost, the Secretary of Defense is chartering this effort. This is not uh, someone lower in the Department of Defense. And he has assigned that task to the Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, the uh, Undersecretary for Intelligence and Security, that's me, because I'm responsible for looking at intelligence matters, I'm responsible for security matters. This is potentially both. So, chartered by the Secretary of Defense, standardized, and uh, uh, really a methodical approach. It's something that we're doing that has not been done before. Can we get some kinds of assurances that uh, your analysts will follow the facts where they lead and, and assess all hypotheses? Absolutely. So we're open to all hypotheses. We're open to any uh, conclusions that, uh, that we may encounter. But Scott Bray made clear we had not recovered any of these objects. Uh, when it comes to material that we have, we have no material. Uh, we have detected no emanations uh, within the UAP task force that, that, is, uh, that would suggest it's anything non-terrestrial. Uh, in origin. The UAP task force doesn't have any wreckage that isn't uh, explainable, that, that isn't consistent with being of terrestrial origin. Do we have any sensors underwater uh, to um, detect on submerged UAPs? Uh, anything that is in the ocean or in the seas? So I think uh, that would be more appropriately addressed in closed session. So. Later, they were questioned by Representative Gallagher on other UAP programs that may be in operation. Moultrie was careful with his words. Um, Mr. Moultrie, as the chairman uh, mentioned, uh, DOD had an initiative to study UFOs in the 1960s called 
Project Blue Book. It's also been well reported in our briefing and in, in other places that we have more have more recent projects, specifically uh, ATIP. Could you describe any other initiatives that the DOD or DOD contractors have managed after Project Blue Book ended and prior to ATIP beginning? Did anything also predate Project Blue Book? So I, I, I can't speak to what may have predated uh, Project Blue Book. I mean, of course, there's Roswell and all these other things that people have talked about over the years. Um, I'm familiar with Blue Book. I'm familiar with, uh, with ATIP. Uh, I haven't seen other documented uh, studies that have been done by DOD in that regard. So you're not aware of anything in between Project Blue Book and ATIP? Not aware of anything that's uh, official that was done in between those two. Okay. Hasn't been uh, brought to my attention. Okay. Uh, additionally, are you aware of any other DOD or DOD contract programs focused on UAPs from a technological engineering perspective? And by that I mean, are you aware of any technology initiatives focused on this topic other than initiatives focused on the individual case inve investigations? I am not aware of any contractual programs that are focused on uh, any anything related to this other than what we are doing in the Navy task force and what we are about to launch in terms of our effort. Uh, same question for you, Mr. Bray. Uh, same answer, not aware of anything outside what we uh, are doing in the UAP task force. So just to confirm, you're not aware of any technology or engineering resources that have been focused on these efforts besides what we've mentioned today? Once again, I'll say no contractual uh, uh, or uh, programmatic uh, efforts that are involved. The reason why I, I, I Qualify that way. Yeah, let me qualify it that way. I, I can't speak to what people may be looking at in the department. Somebody says, I'm looking at something, I'm looking at something that may Got be it. unidentified, and I, I can't speak to that. I speak to official programs that we have on the record. It's also been reported uh, that there have been UAP observed uh, and interacting with and flying over sensitive military facilities, particularly, and not just ranges, but uh, some facilities housing our strategic nuclear forces. Uh, one such incident allegedly occurred. Uh, uh, at Malmstrom Air Force Base, in which 10 of our nuclear ICBMs were rendered inoperable at the same time. A glowing red orb was observed overhead. I'm not commenting on the accuracy of this. I'm simply asking you whether you're aware of it and whether you have any comment on the accuracy of that report. Let me pass that to Mr. Bray, if you've been looking at the UAPs over the last uh, three years. Uh, that data is not uh, within the holdings of the UAP task force. Okay, but are you aware of the, the report or that the data exists somewhere? I have uh, I have heard stories. I have not seen the official data on that. So you've just seen informal stories, no official assessment that you've done or exists within DOD that you're aware of uh, regarding the Malmstrom incident? Uh, all I can speak to is, you know, what's within my cognizance of the UAP task force, and we have not looked at that incident. Well, I would say I mean, it's a pretty high-profile incident. Uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but that's out there in the ether. You're, you're the guys investigating it. I mean, who else is doing it? Within the year, it became clear they weren't the only ones. Tonight, for the first time, a former senior military intelligence officer comes forward to say what we've only imagined is true. You are saying to the human race, for the first time, we are not alone. We're definitely not alone. Claims that our government has proof of alien life. We have spacecraft from another species. We do. Yeah. How many? Quite a number. Some are landed, some are crashed. Next episode, 
somebody steps out of the shadows to blow the whistle on this strange phenomenon. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. A special thanks to Ralph Blumenthal for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Clips from We Are Not Alone, The Whistleblower Speaks, used with permission from News Nation. Additional audio from the National Archives and C-SPAN. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by R.J. Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk.